Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. In case you don't know me, if we haven't met, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here. And if it's your first time here or you're new, you're actually here right at the end of a sermon series in kind of a challenging book of the Bible. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's right in the middle of the Bible, right after Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And just to catch everyone up to speed, on the surface, Ecclesiastes seems to adopt a pessimistic view of life. The author is referred to as the preacher, capital P, and he begins in chapter 1, verse 2, with this thesis statement, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And if you are in chapter 12 with me now, if you look at verse 8, which was the last work from la- last verse from last week's passage, it says the exact same words, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And this refrain of his book ends his writing, apart from today's epilogue. The word translated vanity here is the Hebrew word hevel, which you all know well by now. It means vapor or smoke or a breath. It's something that's here now and gone in a moment. It can't be grasped. And the wise preacher has said over and over in 12 chapters that all of life is hevel. 12 chapters that question the apparent meaninglessness of life, including wisdom and work and wealth, pleasures and folly have both been weighed in the balances and found wanting. He's pondered why good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people and whether there are good people at all. He's lamented how chance happens to everyone, how time marches relentlessly on, and how death comes for us all in the end. And we might agree with all of this depressing assessment, having experienced the same life the preacher has here on this fallen earth under the sun. We have the same ground-level view as the preacher. But here in this conclusion today, we are encouraged to turn our gaze to God alone, to remember God, the creator, to trust in God to guide us through this life. Ecclesiastes gives the hopeless man a way forward through this life, saving us the heartache of worthless pursuits if only we fix our eyes on God and on his purposes. So let me read for us Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14, and then we'll pray. Beginning in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh." The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of God. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, help us now as we look to your word to see and seek and understand wisdom. And we pray that you would make us wise. Your word what says that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And Lord, we pray that you would give us this day wisdom in abundance, that we might know you and fear you and serve you as we ought. Help us now, Lord, as we look into your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading this week about a man named Bruce Bruce actually runs a website that I frequent, but I knew nothing about him until this week when I read his About Me page. 
Bruce was born in Austin in the 1940s into a very broken household. His father was an addict and a gambler, and he actually left Bruce and uh, Bruce's mother when he was less than one year old. His new stepfather hated him, never called Bruce by his name. He called him that boy, and he, would, he said he would never amount to anything. And so to prove his stepfather wrong, Bruce pursued basketball. He excelled in it and played in college. And after graduating, he was accepted into med school at UT Southwestern. And the spring before he started, he met a girl on a blind date. They dated four months. They got married. And fast forward about 20 years, and Bruce now has a a lucrative medical practice, four children. He was running marathons, training 120 miles a week, and basically enjoying a wealthy and, he says, self-absorbed life in Austin. But suddenly he suffered a hip injury that threatened to take everything away. He says it was the first obstacle in his life that he would not be able to overcome by his own self-will. Right? With his issues with his stepfather, he was able to turn to sports. But here his disease had taken that away from him. He couldn't turn to his knowledge and escape into med school because despite being a physician now, he couldn't heal himself. He suddenly found himself in a place where all was lost and all that he had worked for was gone. Someone at that point tried to give him a study Bible, and his response was, what's this for? I'm a good person. Now, we'll come back to Bruce later, but let me ask you, what do you live for? As we asked last week, what's your perspective on life, your perspective of your accomplishments? What's your purpose on earth? Are you doing pretty well in your own eyes, successful? Or have you lost a hold of some things? Are you still pursuing and seeking meaning? Well, interestingly enough, the preacher was both doing well in life and still seeking meaning. He wrote Ecclesiastes to summarize his life's work of attempting to gain knowledge. And here in these final verses, he gives us his conclusion. He graciously doesn't leave us hanging and hopeless as his readers. The point is that it's all about God. It's all about God. Life is about God. Living and all it entails, our pleasures, our pains, our successes, our failures, are all to be experienced in light of who God is. Finding joy in our toil is because of God. Growing old is about God. Wisdom is about God. Ecclesiastes is about God. Today's epilogue goes to great lengths to show that if you don't believe this, God has actually been at the front and center of this whole book. And God must now be at the front and center of our whole lives. The preacher ends with only one on the stage, shining the spotlight on God himself. In all of his wisdom, his conclusion is this, that the meaning of life is only found when we live under God's authority. To live wisely means to live under the authority of God. And so we'll look at it today in three parts, looking to the preacher's words, to God's wisdom, and finally to our walk. So the preacher starts by defending his credentials, okay? This is the first point, the veracity of the preacher's words, if you're taking notes. The veracity of the preacher's words, which shows us that the preacher speaks with authority. He speaks with wisdom, and his goal is that we might know truth and delight in it. Now, before we jump into the actual text, we need to acknowledge a little bit of interpretive difficulty and controversy uh, in this final section. You see... There are commentators and biblical scholars who look at the book of Ecclesiastes and they just cannot accept, cannot accept that it is right or true. Some have called it an erroneous book, that it is a sinful perspective that doesn't understand God because it is so pessimistic, because it's so depressing. In fact, in their view, this book was inspired that way. It was inspired with erroneous views of God to make a point by being wrong 
Basically, God inspired a sinner to write sinful things so that we as Christians could learn what we should disregard. Now, another view comes from the fact that these verses are in the third person. You might have noticed when I was reading it that the preacher starts talking about himself as, as the preacher, as he, whereas in the whole book, he was saying I and me and speaking in the first person about himself. Some people see that this is evidence that this epilogue was added. It was an addendum made by a later editor who was putting it together. And since this conclusion is so much more positive and God-centered than the rest of the book, they say, that the author must have been just so misguided, author of the Ecclesiastes, that an editor had to step in and add this paragraph to make the book more orthodox so that it could be included in Holy Scripture. This is what some commentators, some scholars believe. There are schools of thought going down this avenue. But here at Zoe, we believe and teach that the whole Bible is the Word of God. The Word of God is inspired and authoritative. It is true and it is useful, the whole of it, for the believer to know God, to understand his plan of salvation from the beginning, to learn how to righteously live before him. So we're going to come at this passage with the same perspective we have been all along, that Ecclesiastes as a whole is a true and honest book. It's an honest look at life, and it is, in its entirety, God's wisdom for us. And I believe that this epilogue is written by the preacher himself, and we must allow him to conclude his own work for us. And if we listen, I think we'll actually find that he reveals the intent of his book. He'll describe what he wants us to do and how he wants us to take it, how we're to live in light of all the things that he said. And so starting in verses 9 and 10, the preacher argues first that we can trust what he has said because he is wise and because it's true. It's almost like he's acknowledging that he's said some pretty crazy-sounding things so far, might not be accepted in the future, but he presents his resume then, establishing his authority and wisdom by describing his accomplishments. Look at verse 9. He says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. These first two verses are like an article byline in the newspaper. It's a description of the author that garners our trust in his credibility, in his ability to write what he has written, and the authority to say what he said. Earlier this week, I was signing up for a conference, and when it came to selecting which breakout sessions to attend, I do what I usually do. I look at the topics a little bit to consider, but more importantly, I consider the speaker. Is this someone I've heard of that I know and trust? What is their background to speak on this topic? And the reason here that we can trust the preacher, the preacher is that he is wise. His claim to fame was his wisdom. So much so, it's assumed in the first phrase, besides being wise. You know, this is further evidence that the preacher is King Solomon, whose wisdom was the primary characteristic we know him for. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived because he was gifted wisdom by God himself. But notice that he wasn't wise for wisdom's sake. It says he also taught the people knowledge. That is, he wanted to train others. He wanted others to know. His focus was not, was not just to show off his own knowledge or retain it for himself, uh, but to share it, that others would learn and follow. I did my undergrad at UCLA in engineering, and some of my electrical engineering professors were terrible. I had one guy in particular, my EE2 professor, who was such a bad teacher that I wondered why he was doing it at all. He would come late to class, read off his slides verbatim. He would kind of begrudgingly answer our questions and act like we were insufferable and then go off in a huff. And I wondered, if he's like this, why is he teaching? And it wasn't just that class. There were quite a few of them, mostly engineering, actually. But then I Googled him, 
and I discovered that he was the leading expert in his field. He had just published this huge paper on some revolutionary new semiconductor thing, and I realized that he and many like him were research professors. They were there to have their labs funded by the university, and for them, teaching was just this necessary evil that they had to do to receive that money. They were the experts who loved their studies and were pushing the boundaries of the field, but when it came to teaching that knowledge and sharing it with young, ignorant students like me, no thanks. They wanted nothing to do with it. Now, thankfully, the preacher is the opposite. It might seem at first read like Ecclesiastes has just been him ruminating on his thoughts, on his own wisdom and experience, bragging about his accomplishments and lamenting about the transient nature of everything. But that's not what it is. These two verses show us that this is not his private diary documenting his innermost despairing thoughts that was later uncovered and put into the Bible. These verses tell us that the reason he wrote Ecclesiastes was to preserve his wisdom and to educate others in posterity that we might hear and learn and be wise. And God has preserved it for us in Scripture. So we need to think of Ecclesiastes first as authoritative wisdom from God. Written for our instruction, as the Bible says, of the Old Testament scriptures, because God seeks to teach us something about himself. Now, not only was the preacher a teacher, he was also a collector. This is actually the meaning of the book's title. The Greek word ekklesiastes means the gatherer or the collector. And the end of verse 9 describes him as a collector of proverbs. And it's just like how you describe someone who collects uh, stamps or coins or baseball cards as a hobby. Over time, he's amassed this kind of compendium of Proverbs. And as with many antiques, he intends to pass on all its value to future generations. We see him later in verse 12 addressing his son. This is also what Solomon does in Proverbs. My son, my son. He wants to pass this on. My dad collects stamps. But he wants to pass on that collection to my nephew and perhaps beyond. And that's the point of collecting them, their value over time. Part of the value of collecting Proverbs is in its being passed down from generation to generation. But if you're a collector of anything, you know that not everything is worth keeping, right? The ability to comb through all the paraphernalia and remove the worthless junk is the mark of a good collector. A good collector cannot be a hoarder. Now, it might sound like the same thing, but they're fundamentally different. The distinction is in the vital process known as culling. Culling, going through to to weed out the bad and keep the good. Now, many of you don't know this, but I used to be a wedding photographer. And the worst part to me about running a a wedding photography business was not the admin and the sales, not the bridezillas or the mothers-in-law, not the 16-hour workdays on your feet without meals, not the guests with cell phones getting in your way. The worst part of wedding photography for me was the culling afterwards. It was going through 10, 15, 20,000 photos at the end of the day, trying to get it down to 200. It was terrible. That's the curse of digital photography, where burst mode is normal and storage space is cheap. Culling is the hardest work. And if you've gone through your Google photos, you probably know what I'm talking about, sifting through all that junk. Well, the preacher knew how to cull his collection. That's what the end of verse uh, 9 is about. He weighed and studied and arranged them with great care. Weighing means to evaluate it in your mind, to consider its quality. Quality assurance is what it is. Methodically testing each proverb to assess its truth and its value. 
Studying here refers to searching out and investigating. It's exploring, leaving no stone unturned. It's going out and finding things, having kings and queens come to you, just searching far and wide for Proverbs. And one of my favorite board games is called Wise and Otherwise. I don't know if any of you have played it. It's out of print now. But it's played like Balderdash, okay? So everyone writes something, and you're trying to fool everyone else into voting for the thing that you made up, right? That's how you get points. But the cool thing is the basis of this game is that the developers did a lot of research into international proverbs. And so what they give you on the card is the first half of a foreign proverb, translated into English, of course. Uh, And everyone has to make up what they think the second half will be. And that's what you vote on. Hence the name, wise and otherwise. For example, there's an old Russian saying, your dog wishes that you would live forever. There's an old Cameroonian saying, a single eye mustn't be played with. There's an old Jamaican saying, sweet soup makes a man drink ants. Now I wonder if in his search far and wide, if Solomon encountered some of these, but was like, nope, not good enough for the Bible. Just good enough for a board game. The point is the preacher made this painstaking life effort for the sake of teaching knowledge to his people. All of this hard work, his life's endeavor of doing all these things, calling through it, the worst part of it, sifting through for for the gold to pass this on for generations. And we are the beneficiaries of this book, not just of Proverbs, the collected Proverbs, but also this wisdom in Ecclesiastes. So we have to start off understanding that this is here to teach us. You see, the preacher could have said, I'm the wisest man in the world. I'm going to write an enigmatic book that you can't understand because you're beneath me, you simpletons. But that was like my electric engineering professor. He wasn't like that. Instead, he said, I've been given wisdom by God. I'm renowned for it. I accept that. Let me help you be wise too. Only listen to me, he says, and and look what I've discovered and am passing down to you that you might also be wise. So, brothers and sisters, the book of Ecclesiastes exists to help us. It helps us by revealing God's authoritative wisdom given through his servant. Now, verse 10 gives two characteristics of the Proverbs. First, that they were words of delight. Words of delight. And many interpreters take this to mean that the Proverbs are aesthetically pleasing. There's a beauty to the poetry itself. Just last week, we had a meeting with the Zoe music team, and I was talking to them about how the great thinkers and the highly educated scholars of the 18 and 1900s often expressed themselves in verse. That's just what they did in the time. It was the highbrow means of cultural expression and learnedness. If you were in higher education, you memorized poetry and you wrote poetry. This was especially true of theologians, and that's why so many rich hymns exist from that period and have endured until today. Poetry is this high art that is expressive in its form and its structure, that with all of its syntactical acrobatics, holds the ability to convey far more than prose in fewer words. But if you don't appreciate poetry, the good news is the words of God's wisdom delights us not only in form, but more importantly in its content. The words of wisdom are desirable and delightful. The word of God is pleasing and refreshing. The word of God is a comfort to the weary. It's a balm for the afflicted. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
And if we, like the man from Psalm 1, only delight in the law of the Lord, we would too be deeply satisfied and abundantly blessed. These are delightful words. But more important, the second characteristic is they are also true. These are words of truth written uprightly. Wisdom must be both delightful and true. Because think about it. Words can be delightful, but not true, right? In fact, some of the most delightful words that you can hear are untrue, like flattery and deception. We can hear something that really makes us feel good, but it isn't actually helpful because it doesn't accord with reality. Ladies, when you ask your husbands how that dress makes you look, are you looking for words of delight or words of truth? Now, hopefully it's both. But just as another example of something delightful but untrue, what about the prosperity gospel? The prosperity gospel that twists scripture to promise believers success and riches and good health. It sounds appealing. It sounds amazing. That explains its popularity. But so many have been deceived because it's a lie. Delightful words that are untrue have no weight and no profit. On the other hand, truth can sometimes be hard-hitting, but not delightful, not desirable. Sometimes truth is mean-spirited, discouraging, or even offensive. And the Bible warns against wielding truth in this way. Instead, it says in Proverbs, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Colossians says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Wise words are both beautiful and true. Wise words seek the hearer's ultimate good and delight. And so we must first understand that Ecclesiastes is a true book. It is an honest book. But its truth can lead us to delight. Yes, Ecclesiastes invites us to take an honest look at the harsh reality of life on this broken earth. But the reason it raises all of these questions is to show that they can all ultimately be answered in God himself. Ecclesiastes is written to bring us to God. That meaning is found in God. Joy and contentment are found in God. Wisdom and value and purpose are found in God. So do we delight in truth? Ask yourself this. Have I accepted what is true in my life, in my situation, that God has given me a particular lot in life that I'm supposed to glorify him in with contentment, thanksgiving, and faithful stewardship? Or am I unhappy with my relationship status, my career path, the number of kids I have, the home I own? Do I covet the possessions of others or their giftings or their status in life? Look, only when we're able to acknowledge that all of these things I've mentioned are hevel, will we actually be finally freed to find joy and contentment in God rather than our circumstances? Do you delight in truth about God? Do we understand that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, as he says of himself multiple times in scripture? That's who he says he is. It's true and it should bring us delight. The truth is if you are his, he loves you like a father. If you are his, he provides for you as his child. If you are his, he cares for you as his own. And yet sometimes we find it hard to believe that because of what has come our way. Brothers and sisters, if we are wise, we ought to think on what is true and delightful. And the Apostle Paul hits on this in Philippians 4 when he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, 
Think about these things. Think about these things. Think about what is true and pure, beautiful, delightful, and then you will have peace in this broken life because you'll be able to live meaningfully in a world that is all hevel. When we take the preacher's counsel and receive his knowledge, we will find delight and truth in his words. And so that's the first point, the preacher's words. But next he answers the question, what is wisdom even for? And that's the second point, the value of God's wisdom. The value of God's wisdom. And we see this in verses 11 and 12, which shows us that all wisdom ultimately comes by God's authority and for his purposes. I'll start in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. This is a shepherding analogy, okay? Wise words are goads. What are goads? Basically, goads are sticks, sometimes up to eight feet long. They're sharpened to a point at the end, and they're used to drive cattle, prodding them along to move in the desired direction, goading them, hence the name, goads. Now, the concept of nails firmly fixed continues this goading illustration, all right? There's a parallel poetic structure here, which indicates that both lines refer to the same imagery, So uh, the nails here refer to actually the tip of the goad, which could be a metal spike that's firmly fixed and sharpens to a point. And now these goads function, as I mentioned, to direct animals by pricking at them, poking them. And just as shepherds use goads, sages use words. The words of the wise are meant to poke and to prod at you, to rouse the slothful, to spur the sluggish and correct the wayward. God's words are the stimulus to godly living. Okay, Wise words are the stimulus to godly living. Remember Acts 2? After Peter's sermon at Pentecost, what happened? The people were cut to the heart. And then what? 3,000 people were saved that day. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The words of God's wisdom, brothers and sisters, are nail-tipped goads that by the power of the Holy Spirit induce us to action and guide us in the way of the shepherd. And this is the shepherd of verse 11, which concludes, they are given by one shepherd. That is, all words of wisdom come from the same place. There's one author, one source of all wisdom, and that's God himself. God is the shepherd throughout the Bible. He's called the shepherd of Israel in the Pentateuch and in the prophets. The psalmist proclaimed, the Lord is my shepherd, and we are the sheep of his hand. God is the one guiding, directing, spurring, correcting. His wisdom is what incites us to our duty by pricking our hearts. You see, wisdom isn't really wisdom unless... It drives us in a Godward direction. Okay, what you hear and receive and understand and believe, if it does not drive you to God and in the way He wants you to go, it is not wisdom. Anything that moves us any other way is not God's wisdom at all. True wisdom always guides toward godliness. So we need to take the point, pun intended, and listen to the one shepherd. And while we listen to the one shepherd, at the same time, we must ignore all the many other voices. That's verse 12. In verse 12, he warns us that not all books are good books and not all study is profitable. 
The operative word at the start of verse 12 is beware. This is a command. Watch out. It's a warning sign to his dear son. Don't do this. I saw a creepy warning sign online a while back. It's a photo of a sign that's posted in an underwater cave, actually. And it has a picture of the Grim Reaper on it. And it says in all bold black caps, stop, prevent your death, go no farther. There is nothing in this cave worth dying for. The warning sign here is the same. There is nothing outside of this text worth dying for. And don't go too far because it will kill you. The preacher says, stop looking in the wrong places. Beware of anything beyond these. Beyond what? Beyond the words of the wise, the words of the shepherd, the truths from God himself. There's nothing profitable outside of divine wisdom. Like the underwater cave, nothing outside of this truth except, uh, there's nothing outside of this truth except what leads to death and destruction. And so tune out all the noise. There's too many books, he says. And if there were too many books in Solomon's time, just imagine how he'd feel now after the invention of the printing press and now with the internet. Right, we have endless media production and content creation from blogs to YouTube to TikTok. There's a shocking volume of data out there that we could choose to consume. I was reading, this is back in 2022, that more than 500 hours of new video are uploaded to YouTube every minute. 500 hours of content every minute. You have billions of hours worth of content, advertisements, self-published so-called experts, podcasts, social media influencers, all vying for your attention. And you're going to get addicted to stuff on Instagram, even though you know that that's not real. And things are edited, and it's fake. You know it's not true, and you can still just go to it every day. And now with AI churning out even more meaningless drivel, how do you know what you can trust? It's all noise. But do you know another source of, of noise that's competing with the shepherd? It's us. It's yourself, your own voice. And Disney will go out of its way to tell you to listen to your heart and follow your dreams and often it's our inner voice that speaks to us the loudest, isn't it? And the clearest. The heart wants what it wants. It knows and it convinces us that we have to get it immediately at any cost, to any detriment. And we speak to ourselves and convince ourselves that God's way isn't working out, so we need to take things into our own hands. And we forget that what his wisdom says is that above all things, the heart is desperately sick and deceitful. And yet that is often the loudest voice. None of these voices around us or within us are helpful, meaningful, or ultimately delightful. But the solution is simple. The solution is to keep it simple. Keep it simple. The end of verse 12 says, much study is a weariness of the flesh. More study does not necessarily equal more wisdom, but it definitely equals more tiredness. If you don't tune out the noise and keep it simple, it'll only wear you out. For all you parents out there, do you remember what you were like when you were expecting your firstborn? What kind of a, a expecting parent were you? Uh, for me, I became a voracious reader in those nine months. There were a lot of resources recommended to us, and there were lots of things to research. Cloth or disposable diapers, breastfeeding or formula, where to sleep, when to sleep, what position to sleep in, pacifiers or crying it out, vaccine schedules or not. And for every topic, you read 12 books and you get 12 different opinions. And every last one of them is a doctor who knows what they're talking about. Even more discouraging is that when you look at the history of parenting advice, 
you discover that most decisions just flip-flop every other decade or so. Just look at the last century. Tummy sleeping prevents SIDS, sudden infant death. No, back sleeping. No, side sleeping. No, back is best. You should give birth in a hospital. No, you should use a midwife or doula at home. No, hospital is the safest. You should deliver naturally. No, just get the epidural. No, the epidural might do some bad things. Right? Breastfeed. No, formula is fine. No, that's big pharma. Go back. As it turns out, how you raise your child is largely dependent on the decade they were born in. Because prevailing wisdom changes so frequently, and you just think whatever the latest thing that the AAP recommends is right. And it's wearying, right? Because it seems like there's no objective truth when it comes to newborn parenting. But when it comes to living, when it comes to living, Christian, there is objective truth. There's objective, an objective reality that comes from the author of life. True wisdom from the one shepherd. Okay, for some of these newborn issues, there isn't a clear practical moral answer that's the same for every person. But there is a clear answer from wisdom. Choose faithfulness. Choose stewardship. Choose love. Choose trust in the Lord. Choose humility. Choose deferring to your spouse. These truths are what can free us in the decisions that aren't actually moral issues. The reality is, God is the only authority. He's given us his truth in his word. And if God's truth is here, what else could possibly be out there that you would want to turn to? He's laid his truth right here before us. And if only we would read it and know it and study it and love it, we would find that above the din and cacophony of all the competing voices of the world, there is one voice that stands above them all, and it's not my own. Only one voice speaks out always with truth and clarity and authority, and that is the voice of the one shepherd speaking divine wisdom to us. That is the simple answer, and the simple application is, sheep, hear his voice. Do you love his voice? Do you know and recognize his voice when he speaks? Do you long to hear it, and when you hear it, do you long to obey? Christian, are you reading the Bible? If you're in a dark trial right now, or you're wondering why you haven't been growing spiritually in the last few months or even few years, if you're doubting that God is loving or gracious or compassionate because of things happening in your life, is it because you haven't opened the words of truth that he's already spoken and that he longs to speak into your heart? It's literally right here. There are goads in here that will change your life and redirect your life if you will let him. If you're lazy, it'll wake you up. If you're backsliding or slowing down, it'll kick you into gear. If you're straying, it'll correct you. If you're on the path, it'll keep you going. The words of the shepherd are goads that will change your life for the better, and yet are we running away from them? Now, if you think it sounds uncomfortable, it is. No one likes to be prodded with a, a nail. But remember that the shepherd doesn't hate his sheep. The shepherd loves his sheep. That's why he goads them. Discomfort is not destruction, and don't confuse the two. The path that leads to destruction is the one that avoids the correction. The preacher testifies in this book that he has tried everything under the sun. He has seen everything under the sun, and he says, you don't have to do what I did. 
You could never try everything I tried anyways. Just lay down your work and listen to my conclusion. And then by the grace of God, the preacher instills everything into one little verse, verse 13. Now, before we get to it, let me ask you this. Are you ready to hear it? Are we ready to hear whatever this might be in verse 13? I know you all know what it is already, but just bear with me. Are you his sheep wanting to hear what he has to say? Are you willing to let his word have power in your life to direct you? Or is this next verse one that you're just going to add to the swirling cacophony of sounds and opinions that you will weigh on your own later and decide what is right? What if verse 13 is about to be a goad in your backside? A pointed nail coming to jab you in the flesh or cut you to the heart. I pray that will happen. But brothers and sisters, if our study in Ecclesiastes ever made you uncomfortable so far, and I know it has at points, that's great. That's what we want for you. That's what God wants for you. It is meant to prod and drive us in the right direction. But if not yet, let this final point of this final message redirect you because that's all that matters. Here we go. Third point, the verdict for our walk. The verdict for our walk. And the last two verses of the book teach us that wisdom means living under God's authority to rule and to judge. So here, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that's it. That's the conclusion. Let's look at the end of verse 13 first. The ESV says this is the whole duty of man. The Hebrew is actually even simpler. It doesn't mention duty at all. It says literally, this is all of man. Other translations say this is the whole of man, or this is man's all. This is all mankind. And it means something like this is what it means to be man. This is what it's all about for us humans. It's why we were made. The purpose of human life, the meaning of our existence in the preacher's view, is to fear God and keep his commandments. The point of living is to have a right approach to God, to live life completely under his authority. So first, what does it mean to fear God? In any other context, we define fear as a negative, unpleasant emotion, right? An amplified anxiety or a debilitating terror. But biblical fear of God, as most of you know, is much more complex. And yes, there's a rightful element of fright and dread as we come before an awesome and holy, holy, holy God. But if you look at scripture, biblical fear overall is a positive quality, even a desirable experience. Listen to these words from the Psalms and Proverbs, just a few selected texts. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. And it brings good things. The fear of God is the core of our relationship with him and his relationship with us. Fear begins by acknowledging who God is. Psalm 47 says, The Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king above all the earth. Our fear of God exalts him to his rightful place and puts us in our rightful place, which sounds a lot like worship. Worship. And I think that's how God sees fear too, in one facet. In fact, after delivering the Israelites from Egypt, he made a covenant with them, right? And he said, 
You shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now look, he's, he's using the word fear where we would expect the word worship. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice. So the fear of the Lord is also worship. But furthermore, fear is a blessing. Fear is a blessing. It's not just a command of the old covenant like we just read. It's also a blessing of the new covenant. It's a gift from God himself. And if we have it, it demonstrates our security and our salvation. Now, where do I get that from? Jeremiah 31 and 32. You don't need to turn there. That is a famous passage that introduces and prophesies the the coming of the new covenant, that God will restore his exiled people and he will dwell with them as their God. He will write his law upon their hearts and make a new covenant with them. And then he says this, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. That they may not turn from me. Part of God's promise to his people to his covenant people, is that he will give them hearts that fear him, a fear that will keep them near the Lord, dwelling with him and he with them, devoted to him and he devoted to them so that they would not turn away, so that he would not turn away. The fear of the Lord is a blessing from the Lord. He puts the fear of him in us as part of the new covenant promise that if we cling to him, hope in him, and rest in him, he will also bless us. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. And the fear of the Lord is what we were made for. For all mankind to fear God is to live as he intended for us. But the whole duty of man is a two-parter. It's fear God and what? Keep his commandments. They go together. And there's a lot of passages that say this. I'm only going to quote a couple. But for example, Samuel said to all Israel in his parting address, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. With all your heart. Fear demands faithfulness. Moses told Israel the same thing when he gave the law in Deuteronomy 6. He said, Now this is the commandment that you may fear the Lord your God by keeping all his statutes and commandments. Fear God by keeping his commandments. Obedience is the way that Israel would demonstrate their fear of God. To fear God is to do what he says. So it's the same, two sides of the same coin. So it comes down to this. The human life was made to be lived under the authority of God in obedience to the one who reigns over all things. Humanity in its perfect form, okay, as God designed and intended, would be defined by God's dominion over us and our submission to him. Humanity would be defined by God's dominion over us and our submission to him. And what is that if not Eden. At the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, there was a perfect humanity living perfectly in light of God. Creator and creation walking together. Adam, the child of God, enjoying the Lord's presence, doing his will. But we've called this series East of Eden. Why? Because though humanity was intended to live under God's design, or to live under God by design, that's not what happened. The distinction between humanity as God intended and humanity as it is today is very simple. Sin, rebellion, disobedience. 
And that has been the case ever since Eden for all men. In the very first sin, when Adam ate the fruit of the forbidden tree, the appeal of its pleasure and pleasure to the flesh and lust of the eyes was for the first time more enticing to a person than both the fear of God and the keeping of his commandments, and both got tossed to the wayside. And that kicked off man's quest to experience life outside of God's control and to find our fulfillment out from under God's authority as he'd intended. The broken life that the preacher laments in Ecclesiastes is the very result of the judgment upon Adam, exile from the garden, east of Eden. And so we get to verse 14. Final verse, which reminds us that God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. You and I will answer to the Lord for everything. Our secret struggles, your wayward thought life, your selfish pride, your lack of faith. I'm reminded of my old pastor who was counseling a young couple who confessed that they had fallen into the sin of premarital sex. And he revealed to them, much to their dismay, that someone had actually seen them. Now imagine how worried and ashamed you would be in that situation, fearful of your reputation or contempt from others. But the pastor's point was, God had seen them. Unless they breathe a sigh of relief hearing that, that's actually the most crazy thing you could hear. What you would not want to hear, that God knew the secret deeds and God knows the secret thoughts and will judge you for those things that nobody else knows. He is omnipresent and omniscient, watching and evaluating everything we do, all that we say or even think. But let's not forget that the good things matter to God too. He also sees the good things that are done in secret. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the Father who sees in secret will reward you for the good things that should not be public, like prayer and fasting and giving. But the point is, God's omniscience and his coming judgment means that everything matters. It means that everything matters. This is the opposite of what people think Ecclesiastes is about. Because if God sees all, then everything in life matters. There's a reason to do good because God sees. There's a reason to flee evil because God sees. There's a reason to experience oppression and endure it because God sees. And he will make things right in the end. In a very real sense, God's omniscience is the answer to hevel. It's the answer to hevel. Because if God knows all things, can you think about this? If God knows all things, nothing is hevel. Every vapor, every breath that has come and gone and, and blown away from our hands is still held by God. He is still taking that into account. He's still examining it and you'll be accountable for it when all is said and done. Every fleeting reality will be subject to the ultimate scrutiny of a holy God. Because of God's authority, nothing is hevel. Everything has meaning. That's what chapter 12 is about. Verse 1 of chapter 12 started with the God of creation. Okay, started God of creation and ends in verse 14 with the God of judgment. And this is intentional. On the front end, if there is no creator, there is ultimately no meaning in life. We're just products of random happenstance, so nothing matters. On the back end, if there's no final judgment, then also there's no ultimate meaning to life because nothing we do is of any lasting consequence. On both ends, though, where God exists at the beginning as creator and in the end, he will come to judge. That makes everything in this life in between meaningful. It matters. Turn with me to Psalm 130. Psalm 130 
This was our scripture reading. And if we have, I have one last passage on the fear of God to show you because we still have to deal with a human problem. We still have to deal with our sin. We are still east of Eden. We've strayed from the shepherd. And so if judgment is real, then the verdict for us is actually grim because we deserve condemnation, right? And this is where the grace and mercy of God comes in. There's no perfect human. Solomon himself, the wisest of all, besides being wise, Solomon fell into sin and idolatry. We have all resisted God's authority and disobeyed his commandments. All that is except one man, the man Christ Jesus, the son of God who was born on this earth to be the only perfect human, to live the sinless life of perfection that we did not and could not. He never failed as Adam did or as the rest of us do. And because of his perfect obedience, his death on the cross, which he did not deserve, was sufficient to pay for the penalty of all of our sins, for the sins of those who would believe in him. If you believe God, the judge has already accepted Christ's sacrifice on the cross on your behalf so that you can truly live and have eternal life. But now you should be in in Psalm 130. Let's look at verses three and four. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That you may be feared. God's fear is born in us when? When we're forgiven. Isn't that something? There, there's delightful poetry here, whether you like poetry or not, because you think it's supposed to say, oh Lord, you mark our iniquities that you may be feared. Right? As sinners, if he marks our iniquities, we cannot stand before him. We should be afraid for our lives because our lives are, are gone. That's not what he says. He doesn't say that the fear would be dread of punishment, fear of condemnation. It says the opposite, that with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And that, beloved, is insight into how the fear of the Lord works and what it's for. He's forgiven us. He's purchased us and redeemed us. He has given his life for us on the cross, our Savior Jesus Christ. And so we fear God forever. We fear him and obey his commandments. Look, the conclusion of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, it's that everything matters. Our choices matter, truth matters, delight matters, wisdom matters, worship matters, obedience matters. It all matters because of the authority and supremacy of God that makes everything meaningful in the end. Going back to the story of Bruce, shortly after his injury, Bruce met a surgeon, and the surgeon kept evangelizing to him relentlessly over and over. It annoyed him. So finally, Bruce snapped and he said he would go to attend Bible study fellowship with him if he promised to never talk about Jesus again. And you guys know exactly what happened. God got a hold of Bruce that day. He was saved and he quickly joined a solid church. And one year from the date of his diagnosis, Bruce, his wife, and two of his children were baptized on the same day. Bruce is now in his 70s. He's only been walking with the Lord for 20-something years. But he runs this amazing online database of free Bible study resources. He's not a pastor. He has no formal training. But he realized he could shift his medical training in the areas of observation, interpretation, and application when it came to um, diagnosing symptoms and, and treatments and things like that. And use those tools to rightly divide the word of truth. Because what is Bible study? It's observation, interpretation, and application. That's what he does. 
So he runs this website. Quoting Galatians 2, Bruce says this at the end of his testimony. He says, After 24 years of experiencing his sanctifying, transforming grace, I am beginning to understand the liberating truth that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this mortal flesh, I live by faith in Christ, who gave himself up, that I might live forever in freedom from sin, Satan, and the world. But before we go, I invite you all, no matter where you are, to follow God today, to live his way, perhaps for the first time. Look, if you're unhappy in life right now, I hope that today you'll come to realize that you've been looking in the wrong places and listening to the wrong voices. If you're weary, burdened, exhausted, if you've been trying on your own strength to discover or create meaning in your life, I hope you'll turn to what God has already revealed in his word and find true life in him. Now, I won't sugarcoat it. God wants something from you. He does. He demands something from you. He wants you to fear him. He wants you to obey his commandments, to trust him and do what he says, to follow him with your whole heart and submit your whole life to him. That's a big ask. But God can ask that from you because of what he's already done for you. He has provided a savior. He has given his son, Jesus Christ, whose life, death, and resurrection were for you. If you will believe in Christ for your salvation, confess your sins and believe in him, your sins and its consequences will be removed as far as the east is from the west. Your sins have already been laid on Christ at the cross and you will belong to God. And that is great news. Look, we're about to close the page on Ecclesiastes. But are you ready to respond and move in the direction that it has called you? Perhaps today is the day. Perhaps today is the day to die to that pervasive sin in your life you've been battling for a long time and to come to true repentance. Perhaps today is today is the day to stop railing at God and against him, kicking against the goads and what he has in your life right now for you. Stop striving for something better or something former or something new. Perhaps today there's a call to contentment, a call to peace that is found only in God. I'll speak on behalf of the elders when I say we want everyone here to leave this series different. For those who are believers to be strengthened in your faith and in your resolve to live for the Lord. For those who are struggling to see that life has a purpose and there can be joy because of God. And for those who are not saved to come to know this day that there is a way to God and that forgiveness is offered to you today. In this life east of Eden, the only way back to Eden to to submit ourselves back under the authority of God. What was broken by Adam's rebellion against God's authority will ultimately be restored when God is once again enthroned in our hearts and worshiped with all of our being. And so may we live in light of his authority for all of his glory for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the richness of your word and for the truth of your wisdom. And we thank you that even though truth could be goads, sharp, directed, uncomfortable, that ultimately we know it leads to delight because it leads to restoration 
and walking rightly before you. It leads to submission and sacrifice and worship and service to a holy God. So help us this day, Lord, to respond to these words. We pray that you would cut our hearts and you would discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart with the power of your word and the power of your spirit applying that word within us. Lord, we long to know you, to love you more, and to live for you, for that is all that matters. Help us to remember and to do that this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.